Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. Sometimes when we look at a newborn baby, we say something like, Oh, she has the face of an angel. But that's really an exaggeration, isn't it? That's not really true because in the Bible, almost every time an angel is described, they're described as having a face that is shining, a face that shines like the sun or a, a, an appearance that looks like lightning. And so, you know, as beautiful as that little newborn baby might be, their face isn't really shining or radiant like an angel's face is. But there have been times in the Bible when people did have an actual face like an angel that was radiant and did shine. One of those people was Moses, and the other one was Stephen. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, but guess what? They are linked together by the Lord. That's what this episode of our new Bible study is all about. Okay, before we dive into mm, Acts chapter 6, uh, I wanted to just read a couple really short passages, and you'll understand why we're looking at these short passages by the time we finish today. So uh, the first one, and you don't have to go there, I can just read it to you, uh, is in Matthew uh, chapter 28, uh, and I'm going to go with verse 1, and uh on to verse uh, 4. It says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. Then from the book of Revelation, uh, Chapter 10, uh, this is the passage. It says, verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. So keep those images in your mind as we go into Acts chapter 6 today, and uh, you all will be revealed. So 
uh, you'll see why we wanted to take a look at those. So Acts chapter 6, I think this will be our last Sunday uh, in this particular chapter. And uh, remember, we're being introduced here to Stephen and the kind of person he was and what happened to him. Uh, We kind of all know that Stephen was the first martyr of the church. He was eventually stoned to death. Uh, But this is kind of, if this were a movie, this would be the backstory, right? This would be like when you go see Spider-Man, they don't just come out with Spider-Man. They tell you that Peter Parker was a high school kid and a spider bit him. So you have the backstory of your main characters. So if this were a movie about Stephen, this is the backstory in chapter six of who Stephen was and why he's important and why what happened to him happened to him. So we're going to start uh, today in chapter six, verse eight. And uh, we we did this last week. So this is just to kind of set the mood here and the, and the context. So chapter six, verse eight, it says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, as it always seems to do, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. So we asked, you know, what was it about these particular people? Uh, that made them want to argue and take issue with what Stephen was preaching and teaching. They were, I don't think they were taking issue with the great wonders and signs that he was doing. Hard to take issue with that. But he wasn't just doing wonders and signs, was he? He was preaching. He was teaching about Jesus. This is what they had the problem with. Uh, now, you'll notice that all of the... And we, and we talked about whether these were people... These are, from out, these are places that are outside of Jerusalem proper outside of Judea. Uh, And these are all uh, people who would have fit into that category of the Grecian uh, Jews of the day. They're believers, and and they were Jewish, but remember we had the separation of the Hebraic Jews from the the Greek Jews, and the Greek Jews were from outside the area. They probably didn't speak Aramaic. They may not have been able to read Hebrew, but they could speak and read Greek, and the scripture they were using was the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament translation uh, into Greek uh, of, of the Old Testament. And so, uh, and we noticed that Stephen and all the seven men who were assigned to take care of the distribution of the food and so forth and the weight on tables, they are all Greek Jews. They're all Greek names. And Stephen was one of those Grecian Jews who came to belief in Christ later. I mean, not he wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of the 120. He was one who came to belief in Christ after Peter started preaching, uh, right after Pentecost or during Pentecost. So uh, it's interesting that these people who took, uh, uh, took him to task, who, who took an issue with what he was teaching, are all Grecian Jews, the synagogue of the freedmen. These were former Jewish slaves who were, who were slaves in Rome or, or to Romans. Uh, the Jews of Cyrenia, Alexandria, from, that's from Northern Africa, Cilicia and Asia, were uh, provinces of uh, the Roman Empire. And um, so why, why were these particular Jews, and uh, uh, now these, these particular Jews here that are taking task, him to task, these are not believers, okay? 
these are unbelievers, but they were Greek Jews in the area. And the thinking is either they were in Jerusalem uh, because they had come during Pentecost when all Jewish people were supposed to come to Jerusalem for that uh, ceremony and that observance, that religious observance, or it is possible that they had their own kind of synagogues in the area at that time, much like we have a, a Korean church or a church for people from Burma, or here we have a, a church that meets for people from Japan, that maybe these people had synagogues. If you were a, a former Roman slave, you went to the synagogue of the freedmen. If you were from Cilicia, you went to the synagogue where the people from Cilicia were, were, were worshiping and that kind of thing. Whatever the case is, these are the ones, the Greek Jews, unbelievers, who were taking issue with what Stephen was teaching and preaching. Why was it them? Why was it them and not the Hebraic Jews, who were also unbelievers? Why were they seem not to be all that bothered by what Stephen was preaching and teaching, at least what we, we don't have it here in Scripture? And we said last week that probably the reason that these particular people were upset with Stephen is because these are probably the, Stephen, the, the people that Stephen was targeting. These are probably the people that Stephen was preaching and teaching to because he probably wouldn't have gone to the Hebraic Jews to try to you know, evangelize them because he didn't speak their language. He didn't read the scriptures in, in their language. So he would go to the people who were unbelievers who he knew, who he could relate to. He, they spoke Greek, he spoke Greek. They used the Septuagint, he used the Septuagint. So he went to the people who he related to, to preach to. And as he did that, they are the ones then who were having a problem with what he was saying. And so that's where we are, and that's where we come to today. So now we're going to continue in that verse. Uh, that verse it says, these, oh, one second. These, these men began to argue with Stephen, and we pointed out where Saul was from Tarsus. Tarsus is in Cilicia. We know that Paul was in Jerusalem at this time because when Stephen is stoned, Paul holds the coats and cloaks of the people doing it. And we ask the question, we don't know, but when it says these men, the men, some of which are from, some of whom are from Cilicia, arguing with Stephen, was Saul from Cilicia one of the men arguing with Stephen? In other words, was one of the men who argued and had an issue with Stephen and what he was preaching and teaching, Saul? And did they have debates? And Saul, being highly educated, being the pet student of Gamaliel, the most famous rabbi and teacher of the time, uh, would have certainly felt that he could probably, probably would have felt that he could take on Stephen in a public debate. And yet, what happens here? It says, these men began to argue Stephen, verse 10, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. They couldn't, they couldn't win that debate. They couldn't win that argument. Stephen's testimony, his preaching, his teaching, what he, what he said about Christ was too convincing, was too right, too true. And those who tried to stand against him couldn't. Because of why? Because of his wisdom and the spirit by whom he spoke. 
Go back to verse 3 for just a minute. Chapter 6, verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Verse 10. They could not stand against him because of his wisdom or the Spirit by whom he spoke. Stephen was a man full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. That's why he was chosen as one of the seven, and that's why he was able to stand up against these uh, people who were taking issue. Remember, we talked about last week how, you know, when you stay true to the Scripture, you stay true to God's Word, it's a simple argument. It's not simplistic, but it's simple. This is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is bad. This is who God is. This is who Christ is. This is how you become saved. These are things God wants you to do. This is how he wants you to live. It's straightforward. But when you begin to try to make the, you want the Bible to say what you want it to say, when you want God to be the God whom you want him to be, when you want Christ to be the Jesus that you want him to be, then you have to do all these gymnastics of convoluted and confusing explanations. We talked about how the more convoluted and confusing it is, the less true it is, and how that's true in life, too, that uh, a person who's telling you the truth, usually it's a straightforward thing. But when someone's telling you a lie, oh, my goodness, they have this great story to tell you, and it's all this and that and the other thing, and some red light should come on uh, when that happens. So, so that was the way it was happening. So let's go on to verse 11. It says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Remember what he said? What does it mean when they say secretly persuaded? They lie. They lie. They want you to lie. They took you aside and they said, we want you to lie. And some of your translations do have that they secretly say some men to lie. I think you said your translation said lie last week. Some other translations. So what they're saying is not that he did speak blasphemy against Moses and against God, but we want you to say that he did. So we want you to lie about this, even though he didn't say he did. And we notice how it's interesting, isn't it, that they said blasphemy against Moses and against God, that these were primarily Sadducees who were all in with Moses. They only accepted the uh, the books that were written by, by Moses, the Torah. They didn't accept any other scripture. It was all about Moses, all about Moses, all about Moses. So much so that when they were telling these people to lie, so that these Sadducees would be upset, they even put Moses above, before God. It was like, it's more important to say he's blaspheming. You can say he's blaspheming against God, you know, that's probably good, but you gotta say he's blasphemous against Moses. That is, that's even more, that's even gonna get him more riled up than if you say they're blaspheming against God, they're blaspheming against Moses. That's, that's the worst thing that, they, that, they, that you can do as far as they're concerned. So that's where we are right now. Any, that's a quick, up to date to where we are as we start today. Any observations? Can you imagine Stephen even talking about Moses when he's telling them about Jesus? I mean, I can't even imagine that Moses would have come into the conversation. Well, the only thing he would possibly have said is it's no longer necessary for the sacrificial system. Yeah. You know, you no longer need to observe 
the sacrifices of religion, the religious observances where you sacrifice, because Christ is our Lamb of God. He has been. So you don't need to worry about any more of that sacrifice thing. Christ has sacrificed himself as the Lamb of God to take away your sin eternally. So you believe in him, you don't need to follow that system anymore. And that could have been seen as blasphemous, you know. So, okay, so let's go, let's start with verse 12 today. So it says, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, going to get them good and riled up. So uh, they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So interestingly here, uh, the word seized there in the Greek has the connotation of something done violently. They didn't handle him with kid gloves. It was a violent arrest. And it says when they brought him, again, in the original Greek, they brought him is the idea of that they dragged him. So they arrested him, seized him violently, and they literally dragged him to the Sanhedrin. Now, contrast that with Acts 5, chapter 5, verse 26. Chapter 5, verse 26. I'll start at 25. Then someone came and said, look, the men, these are Peter and John, you put in jail, and the other, but Peter and John primarily, the, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. So Peter and John teaching the people. Verse 26. At that, the captain went with his officers, the same, the same group that would do the arrest for the Sanhedrin, their henchmen, and brought the, and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Well, that's a totally different approach, isn't it? So in the case of Peter and John, they did not use force because they feared the people stoned them. But in the case of Stephen, they seized him with violence and dragged him before the Sanhedrin in a violent way. So what is, why? Why, is the, why the difference between if you go get Stephen, just, you know, doesn't matter, use your muscle, but if you go see, get Peter and John, you know, you have to say, uh, excuse me, Peter, w- w- would you please come with me, please? But not so, so why, why the difference between the two, do you think? Well, the other ones were possible. I mean, they had more force. Yeah. These were apostles. These were two, big two of the big 12. Um, yeah, I mean, they were also doing signs and wonders. Stephen was doing signs and wonders. They were preaching. Stephen was preaching. They were getting persecuted. Stephen is getting persecuted. There's a lot, a whole lot of similarities between the two. But one thing that was not similar was apostles and not an apostle. And you would think that the people who were Christians or believers at the time would not make a distinction. In other words, if these 
officers were afraid that they'd be stoned by arresting, in, in, a, in a violent way, Peter and John, why were these same officials not having that fear when it came to Stephen? And it must be because there was a different, uh, there was a different feeling about, there was, among the people even, there was a different feeling, a different kind of loyalty, a different kind of where you perceive them to be, that if you touch these guys, we're going to come after you. But if you touch this guy, we're not going to be happy, but we're not really going to stone you. And the only difference that I can think of is that exactly what you say. Peter and John, apostles, Stephen, not apostles. So let me give you an analogy to maybe you can re- help me wrap my head around this. Let's say that the city of Cincinnati came out and said, Kenwood Baptist Church can no longer preach or teach Christ. You have to stop. Of course, we're not going to stop. So let's say we meet on the Sunday after they say you can't preach Christ anymore, and we meet. And the officers come in in the middle of the service, and they arrest David Palmer. Now, when they arrest David Palmer, the whole church is going to be upset and angry, and all 700 of us are going to rise up in support and defense of David Palmer against the mean man. But let's say they come in here and they arrest me. Well, you guys may not be happy, but the whole church is not going to be upset about that, right? Because there's a difference between David and me. Fine. I don't have a problem with that. I understand that. That's the way it should be. So that's what they're, you know, Peter and John, David Palmer. Stephen, me. Okay, and so that's the difference. That's why they could come in and get arrest Stephen like that, but not go after uh, Peter and John because there was a difference in the way they were perceived by the okay, people. Well, I have a problem with that concept. Okay. Because the church tells us that every single member is as important as every other member and that we all have functions that talk to the ears or the eyes or the whatever. And so I, I don't understand. I mean, I mean, I do understand the difference in the whatever. Perception. But, but yeah. Perception, but, right. I, but they should have been outraged at any of them. Exactly. We used to have a saying in uh, my former church, every, minister, every member a minister. Yeah. Every member a minister. We're all ministers. You don't have to have a degree on your wall. You don't have to. You're, if you're a Christian, you're a minister for Christ. But <laughs> that's that's like the ideal. But in real life, with human nature, that's just not. It should it should happen that way. But it does. Uh, so. Is there a difference in citizenship? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think. In terms of like the government is yeah. concerned and so forth, I think they would be seen as equal. Okay. I think it's more like within the church, they were within the group of believers. They just like like I said here, you know, between the believers of this church, we're all believers, but there would be a difference between David and me. Is there, is there, perhaps it had to do with fear. In other words, I mean, I'm thinking, and this is extreme thinking, but I'm thinking about the Taliban. Okay. If they came over and took our president, 
Uh, there would be huge uh, whatever. But what if they what if they came over and grabbed somebody else? Governor DeWine. Yeah, we're, and we don't want to get involved in that. We, we don't, you know, that could, that could. Well, in verse 13, 513, it says they were highly regarded by the people. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there, there, there was some, I don't mean to say there's no outcry. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, if they came in and arrested me, there would be some people out there in the church who'd be upset, just like David. But I'm just saying that the overall, there's just a difference of emphasis between the two of them. And, and and that's kind of what was happening here. So that's why they could do one and not the other. But here they go. Where are they taking them? They're taking them to the Sanhedrin. Oh my gosh, what a group. The Sanhedrin, they were wrong about Jesus. The Sanhedrin, they're wrong about Peter and John. And now the Sanhedrin is going to be wrong about Stephen. I mean, can these guys get anything right? I mean... And but but, it, but I, the thing I want you to see is the danger and the power of peer pressure. I mean, when you're a part of a group, you and the general movement of the group is in a certain direction. The group has a certain belief. Even if you personally might disagree with that at some point, it's hard to say you disagree with it. It's hard to stand up and say, wait a minute, we, we're just taking this, we're taking this to, it's, now Gamaliel, to his credit, did, didn't he? He kept Peter and John from being executed, and and he was one of the leaders, so he had the strength, you know, as the sometimes as the leader, you might have more strength to stand up against something like this, but be be cautious of getting into a group and going along because you don't want to be different or seen as strange or weird or fanatic or have people laugh at you or disagree with you. You know, if something is wrong, it's wrong. And even if everyone else thinks that, if it's wrong, it's wrong. And you need to stand up and speak against it. So how does the Sanhedrin, how are they wrong all the time? Jesus, wrong with Jesus, wrong with Peter, wrong with John, and now wrong with Stephen. Because they went down this path with Jesus. And when they started down that path, then it was the same path they kept going down and kept, they couldn't pull back from it. Because no one would stand up and say, stop. You know, I mean, we had one or two instances, but not enough of them to stop that. So peer pressure. Can you be part of a group and still think for yourself? That is the question. And that can be difficult sometimes. Okay, so let's go on then. So the Sanhedrin. So verse 13. They produced false witnesses. Oh, no kidding. Uh, those people were lying. Who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law, which is Moses. Something I think is really interesting here in verse um, 13 when he says, their, their testimony is, this fellow never stops speaking. Now, their interpretation, as unbelievers in Christ say, he never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. As an unbeliever, that's the way you frame the argument. Remember how we talked about when you can't beat the, when you can't, when you can't win the argument, then you attack the person making the argument. 
when you can't win the argument, they couldn't win the arguments against Stephen in this debate, they attack the person making the argument, attack Stephen. So as unbelievers, they say, he never stopped speaking against this holy place or against the law. But as Christians or believers, we might say, Stephen never stopped speaking about Christ. This, in, in what they're trying to accuse him of as being something that is guilty and bad and wrong, is actually testimony that what he was doing was completely right. It was completely right. Because he was never stopped, he never stopped speaking about Christ. Now they could say against the temple and against Moses, but those are unbelievers saying that. The believers say, hey, you know what? This guy never stopped speaking about Jesus. It reminds me, I, I in my mind, I have the perception of like, like Billy Graham would have been like that, you know? It's like when he goes out and he does his preaching, his big, uh, you know, campaigns and so forth, he speaks about Jesus, you know? When I have this perception, when he, you know, when he met with presidents, he talked about Jesus. When he met with celebrities, he talked about Jesus. This guy was talking about Jesus all the time. He, you know, when he was talking, he was talking about Jesus. And that's the way Stephen was, you know. He never stopped speaking. They saw that as a problem. We should see that as a great joy and blessing that he was that kind of evangelist. He never stopped speaking about Jesus. Oh my goodness, we should all take a note from that. Okay, so verse 14. For we have heard him say uh, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs of Moses handed down to us, which is what we just talked about a minute ago. So we have heard him say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, into history, Jesus of Nazareth. We talked about how and why Jesus was described in this way, Jesus of Nazareth, you know. Why the of Nazareth? Why did that have to be added in there? It's the meaning. Nazareth. Yes, right. For people who wanted to disparage him uh, and use it as a term of derision, which these people would have, they would say, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Isn't that built? Yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's backwater. The people there, you know, I mean, sheep herders and carpenters or whatever. Well, but it takes away his deity by saying that. That's what you're If you were going, if, if, if I were God, and I were going to send Jesus to earth as the Messiah, I would have him born in Jerusalem. I would have him born into a royal family. I would have him with a gold spoon in his mouth. I would have him have all the luxuries of the world. I would have him be somebody from day one. Not born in Bethlehem, a backwater. Not born to people who were poor. Not, you know, this was exactly the opposite of what you would think. And so, yeah, when they say, you know, this isn't the Messiah from Jerusalem. This is... Somebody from Nazareth, of all places. Now, on the other hand, I think that sometimes the apostles may have used it in a more positive note. This is Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, even though he's from Nazareth, he's still the Messiah. God sent his son to earth from Nazareth. If he can ascend to this from Nazareth, just think what 
I can do. You know, I have no excuse. And so sometimes I think it'd be a negative way, sometimes I think it'd be a positive way, and sometimes I think it's just a, 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 an identifier. You know, there are other people named Jesus. Hey, this is the Jesus from Nazareth. You know, there's no good or bad. It's just identifying him as this particular Jesus. So, okay, so now we've, seen, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Let me ask you at this point, do you see any similarities between what's happening to Stephen and what happened to Jesus? Yeah, you should, because there's a lot. Let's go back to um, Matthew 26 for just a sec. Matthew 26 and verse 59. <clears throat> uh, Matthew 26, 59. It says, the chief priest of the whole Sanhedrin. Ugh, same group, right? <laughs> same group. We're looking for what? Uh, false evidence. They were looking to lie against Jesus so they could put him to what? To death. So they come to Stephen and the group gets together and say, you know what? That plan we had for Jesus, it worked so well. Let's do the same thing with Stephen. So it says, um, finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So it's possible that maybe Stephen quoted Jesus in having said this, because this is the same uh, thing that they're saying that Stephen did, the same crime they're accusing Stephen of. Verse 62, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us, if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it, as you, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I, saw, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken what? Blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death they answered. So look at the similarities. You have, in the case of Stephen and Jesus, the accusation is blasphemy. That was the charge. In both cases, you have false witnesses who were lying. You have, in both cases, the charge was going to destroy the temple. In both cases, you have the people being stirred up. Obviously, you remember that the crowd eventually yelled for Jesus to be crucified. You have them being stirred up, just like they were stirred up here with Stephen. And you have that they seized Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane when they arrested him. They seized uh, Stephen as well. And then the punishment in both cases was to be death. So all of these similarities, which are there for us to see uh, very clearly, that uh, you know, Stephen was a man of God. Stephen was a man who spoke for the Lord to the people. And these similarities are there for us to say, you know, this man was a great believer. He lived his life in the same way that Jesus told his disciples to live their lives. And the fact that he was accused and, and had many of the same things happen to him that Jesus had happened to him is 
evidence of the kind of person that Stephen was. So now we want to go to uh, verse 15. It's the last verse of the chapter. Should I wait and say that until next week? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Okay. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Now, hold there. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to start at verse... Uh, I'll start at verse 9. So Acts 1, 9. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. So verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky. Let's go back to verse 15 of chapter 6. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, the exact same phrase, the exact same Greek word. Luke wants us to know that, I mean, can you imagine how, if you had seen Jesus, I mean, can you imagine how intently you would have been watching that and looking at that? And yet what Luke is saying here is in the same way these Sanhedrin members were looking at Stephen at this moment, intently, they were straining their necks. That's the Greek, the way the Greek is. It's like you strain your neck. You know, you're looking so intently at some. This, this is, in other words, what Luke wants us to know is this, is this is important. It was important to see Jesus ascend. It was, it's important to know that the way these people looked at Stephen at this moment. So let's go on. All who were sitting in the center looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So what does the face of an angel look like? What is the distinguishing characteristic? We just had Matthew, we read at the beginning of the class, says his face was like lightning. We just had uh, Revelation chapter 10, that angel, his face was like the sun. So you have to assume then that when he says the face of an angel, what he's saying is it was a radiant face. It was it was a shining face. There was something supernatural emanating from that face. Now, have we ever seen that before? Well, let's go back here to uh, Exodus, all the way back to Exodus, chapter 34. Exodus 34, I'm going to start reading at verse 29. Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant. It was shining, right? Because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. And they were afraid to come near him, but Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, 
they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went back in to speak with the Lord. Luke has done this purposely. He wants people to know that Stephen's face was radiant, like Moses' face was radiant. He wants us to make he wants us to make the connection because the people at that time made the connection. Because the sad the Sanhedrin was made up primarily of Sadducees. The Sadducees are Moses guys, right? And what they're accusing Stephen of is blasphemy against Moses, aren't they? Talk about the poetry of God. So God gives Stephen the radiant face of Moses. So you're only Moses. You're accusing him of blasphemy of Moses. You're going to execute him because of blasphemy against Moses. And yet here, the moment before you're going to pronounce a judgment against him, he has the same face that Moses had. And so what God is saying is that Moses was my spokesman to my people then, and Stephen is speaking for me now. He wants you to make the connection that he's not speaking against Moses, he's speaking for me. You couldn't have missed that. They didn't miss it. They knew it. They understood it. And yet, it didn't stop. <laughs> but So somebody says, if you were there and you were the Sanhedrin and you were looking intently at Stephen and you saw this face of an angel, what would you have thought? What would you have thought? What would you have done? I think I better shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> For me, in looking at all of this, uh, the Sanhedrin still never got the idea of Jesus as Messiah. That was problematic. Uh, and Stephen got the message. Not only did he get the message, he got the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Right. So the Sanhedrin would never be able to get it. You know, and that's the bottom line, because from my perspective is, you know, the Sanhedrin, they were doing the same thing that they did to Jesus. They still haven't gotten the message that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus died on the cross for their salvation, and and they were still stuck in the old way because everything was going back to the law, you know. And, 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 and the Holy Spirit was working in a different way. When you sit get around somebody that is anointed by the Holy Spirit, there is something that you can see in that person that you can't see in anybody else. That's true. You know, when I went to Billy Graham Crusade in uh, Ethel Waters, was singing. That woman had the Holy Spirit. I mean. Here I am in a mass choir, and she's standing there, his eye is on the sparrow, and we saw Jesus surrounding her. There was just a power about her. So that's where you know I come from on stuff like this. And it's you can tell people that have the Holy Spirit, even in the church, and you can tell people that are looking for uh, and looking for Jesus, even though they say, I'm Christian. Right. But that doesn't mean hope. And, and, I, and I see that parallel often, but the, the parallel with Jesus is unbelievable. Yes. I mean, that is like, we need to get it. <laughs> we need to get it. Right. Well, I Ready? just want to make one, one point, too. 
The reason that Moses' face was radiant was because he had been on the mountain speaking to God. Correct. God uh, speaking face to face with God produced that radiance. So that is saying the same thing, and it ties in exactly what you were saying as well. That um, uh, that um, Stephen was blessed by God. Right. Exactly. He heard from God, he was he was doing God's will. Moses was the in between. Yeah. Right. God spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to the people. What God is doing here by anointing Stephen with his radiant face is saying, it's the same kind of way. I'm using Stephen to speak to you. Stephen is my middle guy now, and he is speaking for me. Just as Moses did, so Stephen is. They both have the same face. What more do I need to do? You know. And yet, as Joe said, when you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't get it. So you don't. You just. You have a hard time getting it. With the same thing with Korah and the people in the Old Testament against Moses and those who stood against Jesus and now those standing at Stephen, standing at Stephen. You say, how how could you miss it? How when you're standing there in Sanhedrin, you see Stephen's face lit up like an angel, like Moses. How can you not stop? But the peer pressure. You've headed down this road. You're in this group, and you can't stop it, or you choose not to stop it, and that's where they are. So, okay, so next week, your homework is to read the entire chapter of chapter 7. We're going to do three quarters of chapter 7 next week in one week. So, so <laughs> I hear the hoots and hollers. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we're going to go through chapter seven quick until we get to the end of it. So read chapter seven and you'll be prepared for next week ahead of time. So praise the Lord. That's all I got for you guys today. Yes. Yes. Well, we talked about, and Dennis, and you weren't here to get your credit a couple weeks ago, but. I said, when we ran across that, remember Dennis had said that when Gamaliel, you know, we weren't sure maybe he was struggling with Jesus, that there were voices that he was hearing from, like Nicodemus, like Joseph Arimathea, and like these other priests that Gamaliel was hearing from people he respected. You know, he maybe not didn't respect Peter and John, but he respected Nicodemus. He expected, uh, respected Joseph, and he, he respected those other priests who are coming to faith? All of a sudden, you got to pay attention to that. You know, the only so. large well, a large number. Yeah. We know what Gamaliel said. Is right. Right. Exactly. So. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, 
and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you, shalom.